0: Have you ever gotten bad directions or bad advice? I wonder, did you take it? Did you regret maybe taking it? When I was in high school, several of my friends and I went to a week of church camp at White Mills Christian Camp over on the other side of E-Town. Man, I loved church camp growing up. Uh, You'd never guess that was me there, uh, that guy on the back row um, at camp. But anyway, after the week was over, we we were heading home. My friend Jeff was driving, and we decided to take some back roads. We didn't know where we were going, but we just kind of were going to wander our way back to Louisville. And this was long before GPS, so nobody else knew where we were either. We were just kind of going along, and we came to this small town, and right in the middle of the road was a sign that said, Road Closed. So we sat there for a minute, not quite sure what to do. And somebody in the back seat, probably my friend Greg, said, just go around it. I mean, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Just, just go around it. Let's see, see what's up. So we went around the sign, and we start working our way into town. And not only do we realize that we are the only car on the road, no cars even parked along the sides, but the sides of the road are lined with people as if they're waiting for a parade to come along. <laughs> and, and so... Yeah, it's not as good a story as maybe it starts out, we thought, were we going to run into a parade? Were they going to come up behind us? We didn't know what was going on, but um, we never actually saw the parade, but we did roll our windows down, honk and wave to the crowds as we went by, and I was picturing some kid saying to his mom, really, was that it? You made me come to this? That's the lamest parade I've ever seen in my life. Well, you know, bridge out would have been a whole lot worse than parade route, right? I mean, it could have been a lot worse than what it was. But whenever you're getting your driving instructions from a 16-year-old in the back seat, um, you know, about going around a road closed sign, probably not the best person to take advice from. We're going to look at a church today that got some really bad advice. And some of the members of the church took it, and some of them didn't. But it undermined the ministry of the church in that city. And trust me, this advice was more along the lines of bridge out than parade route. It ended up being devastating. Now before we get to that church and we get to that bad advice, I want you to kind of think about this. Have you ever been reading along in a book or maybe you're watching a movie, maybe some kind of a show on Netflix... And all of a sudden there's a flashback and for just a second you're not quite sure what's going on because maybe you went back a few days or a few months or years, maybe hundreds of years and they give you a glimpse of something and then you come back to the present and all of a sudden you've got context and you understand what's happening. That's what we're going to do today. See, last week, we started out in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Then we came back to the account of Balaam the prophet near the front of the Bible. Then we went back to Revelation again afterwards. Balaam was this prophet of God who turned bad. He was a follower of Jehovah God. He ended up betraying his own people, selling them out to their enemies. The bottom line last week was that almost right is still wrong. Balaam started out good. He was tempted to do bad. It looks like he repented and did the right thing, but he ended up being a traitor to his people and to his God. Balaam was a conspirator, a, a turncoat, kind of the the Benedict Arnold of Israel, and the flashback about him last week was in the middle of the message. This week I want to just start out with the flashback. I want to take you all the way back to the 9th century BC and the account of a woman in the Old Testament named Jezebel. Jezebel was not exactly Mother Teresa or even Queen Elizabeth or Betty Crocker. I mean, she was not only a bad girl of the Bible, she may have been the worst of all. Her reputation in the Old Testament is kind of like the reputation of Judas in the New Testament. There just aren't a lot of Jezebels and Judases that we keep in the nursery. You know, I mean, just... You don't see people naming their child those names very much. Now, there was a store in Savannah called Jezebel, and I've read that there is a line of lingerie named Jezebel, and World War II missiles at times have been named that. But it's not really very popular with newborn babies. I don't know. Maybe you know a Jezebel. I don't. But I want to show you her story. And then we're going to take a look at how she plays into things in the book of Revelation. What Jesus said about her and then about this church that looked too much like her. Ahab was the king of Israel. This is years, you know, ninth century B.C. It was during the time of the prophet Elijah. Gone were the glory days of King David and King Solomon. Ahab was an evil king. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 1630, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And it goes on to say, not only did he consider it trivial to commit the sins of his ancestor Jeroboam, he also married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon. Now the Sidonians were pagans. They worshipped the false gods Baal and Asherah. And Jezebel had her husband build a temple to Baal in uh, Samaria where they lived. And also she had Ahab build an altar for Baal. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and from my study, Baal and Asherah were were gods of fertility, and the Asherah poles were sometimes trees that suggested life, sometimes they were an actual pole that was carved suggesting certain anatomical features that we won't go into right now. But Baal and Asherah, uh, their worship involved child sacrifice temple prostitution, both male and female, and unrestrained sexual orgies. Now the Bible study that our ladies are having right now, they're studying the prophet Elijah. And we see in that study that Ahab and Jezebel were confronted by Elijah. He single-handedly, certainly with God's help, he defeated 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, who all were fed from Jezebel's table, the Bible says. And I'm going to be preaching on that story of Elijah uh, in my next series, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with him right now. The key for you to understand is that Jezebel brought pagan worship into Israel. And her husband Ahab not only disobeyed God by marrying her, a pagan, but Ahab was too weak to stand up to her. And we know that when Elijah overcame the prophets of Baal and proved that Baal was a false god, Jezebel vowed that she would have Elijah put to death. Fortunately, that plan failed, but we do learn in 1 Kings 18 that Jezebel was systematically killing off the prophets of God. Now, one day, Ahab saw a vineyard, and it was a beautiful vineyard. And he found out that it was owned by a man named Naboth. And Ahab tried to buy the vineyard from Naboth, but Naboth did not want to sell because this land had been in his family for generations. It was his inheritance. And some of you know exactly what that's like. Well, Ahab went home sulking Because it wasn't enough to be king. It wasn't enough to live in a palace. It wasn't enough to have all the land he could ever need. He wanted that vineyard. And Jezebel saw him sulking. She asked him what was wrong. And he told her all about the vineyard that he couldn't have. And of course she said, do you want a little cheese with that wine? (laughs) Actually, That's not what she said. She said in 1 Kings 21 7, is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard. And she did. She hired a couple of corrupt men to testify that they overheard Naboth cursing God and cursing the king. And then she forged her husband Ahab's name to a decree that said Naboth must be taken outside the city gate and stoned to death. And that's what happened. And so Ahab got his vineyard. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, as you can imagine, God's furious. He's furious with Ahab and Jezebel for the the idolatry and for the murder of his prophets and now this deception that has ruined Naboth's life and his legacy. So God sends Elijah to pronounce judgment On Ahab and Jezebel. And in 1 Kings 21, Elijah confronts the king and queen. He says to Ahab in verse 19, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, you, yours. And then to Jezebel, he said in verse 23, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Now in case you're tempted to feel sorry for Ahab and Jezebel for this terrible prophecy about them, this is what it says in verse 25 of that chapter. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And so the prophecy was made, it wasn't much later that Ahab was in battle and Arrow pierced his armor. He sat bleeding for hours in his chariot and after he died and the servants washed out the chariot, it says the blood spilled out onto the ground and dogs came and licked it up just as Elijah had foretold. Now, Jezebel's demise was even more intense. When other kings came along after Ahab was gone, Jezebel stayed in the picture. She's encouraging idolatry and witchcraft, we learn, in 2 Kings. And and God had a new king anointed, Yehu, and, and he came to the town of Jezreel looking for Jezebel. And this is the last confrontation. Her time is up. She saw him coming. She knows that this is the end because of the prophecy. So she puts makeup on. She fixes her hair. She sits in the window kind of arrogantly looking out at down below this man of, uh, of God, the king, uh, coming. And when Yehu arrives, she insults him to his face. And he looks up at the window and calls out, who's on my side? And her closest servants look out the window and basically say, we are. And he said, throw her down. And they threw her down. And man, the Bible is graphic and clear. She hit the ground. Horses trampled her dogs came and devoured her flesh and God's prophecy came true Israel's most evil queen was silenced who says the Bible's boring I'm telling you man this is a this is an intense story now we're going to take a look at why that fits in with revelation in just a second but there's a couple of things I want to mention before we we go to the end of the Bible in that last book Jezebel the queen and Baal the the pagan god I was studying about Jezebel this week. I came across an article online from U.S. News and World Report 10 or 15 years ago. The article was called, Jezebel was a killer and prostitute, but she had her good side. And so that, of course, kind of caught my attention, so I read the article. Here's some quotes from the article. To modern feminist authors, Jezebel is one of the most intriguing women in the Bible. A blood-stained yet strong-willed, politically astute, and courageous woman. There's a, it quotes a a quote Bible scholar, I'm not sure who decides that's what she is, named Janet Gaines, the University of New Mexico. She wrote this about Jezebel. She said, Jezebel became a convenient scapegoat for misogynistic biblical writers who tagged her as the primary force behind Israel's apostasy. She has been denounced as a murderer, prostitute, and enemy of God, yet there is much to admire in this ancient queen. She went on to say about Jezebel bringing Baal and Asherah worship to Israel. Perhaps Jezebel optimistically believed she could encourage religious tolerance in Israel. Perhaps she saw herself as an ambassador who could help unite the two lands and bring about cultural pluralism, regional peace, and economic prosperity. What spurred Jezebel to action is unknown and unknowable. Oh, but the motives of the biblical writer come through plainly in the text. Jezebel was a bold and impious interloper who had to be stopped. Even so, this author says, she remained loyal to her religious upbringing and was determined to maintain her cultural identity. I don't know why I'm surprised that somebody would come along, call themselves a Bible scholar, and make Jezebel the heroine instead of the villain in the story. Why is it so wrong to celebrate the strength and dignity of women in the Bible like Sarah, Deborah, Abigail, Jael, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha, Priscilla, Tryphena, and Trophosa. We could go on and on, right? Why do we have to try to make Jezebel, who was clearly an enemy of God and a very evil person, into the heroine? Now, look, I I, I get it. It was a male-dominated culture when the Bible was written. I, I admit that's true. But man, heroines of faith in scripture are detailed with great clarity, and the villains are recorded in living color color as well. We don't have to turn the heroines into the villains, or the villains into the heroines. We we don't need to to try to rewrite the history like that. And yet I'm not surprised that somebody has has done that. Now, we're going to get to Jezebel in a second, but but, but let me say one last thing about Baal, this this Baal worship, this, this false god in Revelation, before we get to Revelation, because I think that it takes us right into what Jesus said to the church there. I believe that there are two kinds of false gods that have been part of pagan worship since nearly the beginning of time. There are lifeless statues. They have no power. They were, are just wood, metal, stone, images that people have crafted and decided in some way that they want to worship. There's no power there. They're, they're just an item But, friends, I believe that there are other kinds of false gods as well. And maybe they are represented by wood, metal, or stone statues. But behind those pagan images are, I believe, demons that do have power at work in the world today. We know that demons are active in the world. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the, the authorities and the powers and the rulers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are many Christian uh, scholars today who believe that that Baal was not simply a lifeless statue that existed 3,000 years ago, but rather he was a powerful demon who is still at work in the world today. They suggest that the sexual perversion of modern culture attests to Baal's influence that may be more pervasive now than ever before. If you think about there being like an army of, of demons in the heavenly realms, I mean, it would make sense that, that the devil is like commander-in-chief. He's like the general. But it would also make sense that there would be demons close to him who have tremendous power, his lieutenants, his, you know, those underneath him. And many believe that Baal is one of those demons, maybe the most powerful of all besides Satan himself. There's a, a Jewish Christian author named Jonathan Kahn who wrote a book recently called The Return of the Gods. And it's all about God's like Baal and Asherah that he believes are clearly at work in the world today. And friends, I don't know about all that. I I can't tell you for sure about that. I don't have all the answers at all. But we're going to see in the book of Revelation that Jezebel's legacy is still strong. And she was a huge promoter of Baal, false god or demon, whichever. This series that we're in. We've been talking about the seven churches in Revelation, seven letters written to these churches. They are in seven ancient cities in Asia. And and Jesus dictated these letters himself to the Apostle John, messages for the churches. These churches, as we've said before, had different strengths and weaknesses. But in one way or another, there are similarities... To the church in the world today. That's why we study them. It's why we want to understand what they had going well, what they didn't, because we want to be the best we can be. The series, hashtag up to us. If we're going to be a church that impacts the community and the world, it's up to us. The hashtag reminds us we're all in this together on the same team. Now, the series began with the church in Ephesus. It was a legalistic church. They were faithful and hardworking, but man, their motives were just all messed up. They needed to wise up and they needed to start showing compassion for people and devotion to God. And next we saw Smyrna, a persecuted church. As hard as it was for them to hear, Jesus said to them, man, toughen up. The persecution you're facing is going to get worse. He wasn't being harsh with them. He wanted to warn them that they would be ready for what was coming. And then last week, we, we heard about Pergamum. When it came to doctrine, Pergamum or Pergamus, was a liberal church. They were struggling to maintain a pure faith. Some in the church were abandoning the gospel. They were just throwing their arms wide open to any wind of teaching that came along. They needed to grow up. They needed to mature in their faith. And now we come to Thyatira, and they're a pagan church. They have gone even beyond what Pergamum was like. The message here is shape up. It's Jesus' longest letter to any of the churches, and he uses maybe his strongest indictment here. It's in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. This is how it starts. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus again starts the letter by saying who it's from. It's from himself. And he uses his title, Son of God. It's the only time that's used in the book of Revelation. And he talks about his blazing eyes, this intense scrutiny, this penetrating discernment where he evaluates the culture and the work of each of these churches. And he talks about his feet of burnished bronze, the strength and the character of the one who would go to any lengths and who would do anything that needed to be done to save his chosen ones. And there are those in Thyatira who were doing well. He talks about love and faith, about service and perseverance. Some of them, he said, were doing more now than they did at first. In other words, they're moving in the right direction. They're they're doing more and more. Their faith is becoming more important and more real to them. They worked hard like the church in Ephesus, only this church was doing it with love. And they persevered and believed like the church in Smyrna, only not all of them. Because Jesus again turns a corner, talks about their failure And this is finally where Jezebel comes in, okay? Revelation 2.20. Jesus says to the church, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now pretty much every commentary I read believes that when Jesus calls this woman Jezebel that's not her real name It's not her given name It's just that it's because of what she's teaching that he calls her that Jezebel would not have been a name that would have been Used in this culture because it was such a negative name from the past. She was such an evil person, but here there was a woman in the church. She claimed to be a prophetess. She claimed to speak for God, but she's leading these young Christians into all kinds of religious and sexual perversion. Just like Jezebel in the Old Testament promoted witchcraft and idol worship and prostitution and sexual perversion in ancient Israel, this Jezebel in the church at Thyatira was doing severe damage to the people of God. I mean, you think about how easy it would have been in the early days of the church for false teaching to work its way in. I mean, the complete word of God is readily available to us in the United States today in the Bible. And churches all over the country are still being inundated with false teaching. Imagine in the first century when this this church just exploded out of nowhere, it seemed like. And all these people are claiming authority, and people are saying, oh, here's the gospel, and oh, here's really what God meant. And all this false teaching is swirling around. So Paul and Peter and John, they're writing these letters to the church to try to straighten out the mess and keep people clued into the true gospel. And here's this Jezebel who comes to the church in Thyatira, and she is leading the charge for corruption. She may very well have been under the influence of the demon Baal, whether she promoted worship of that specific God or not. And here's Jesus, always full of grace, who gives her every opportunity to change her ways. Verse 21, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. In fact, he's so angry with her, twisting the truth and perverting the gospel, that he uses some of his harshest language that he uses anywhere in the Bible. In verse 22, he says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. It's like, man, Jesus is not fooling around. False teaching and sexual sin, especially when others are led astray, invite his wrath. Now, there's one clarification that's really important for me to make and you to understand before we go on. When Jesus says he's going to strike her children dead, he's not talking about killing her offspring, striking her little boys and girls because of mama's sin. He's referring to those who are following in her ways. It's like her spiritual children who have embraced her lifestyle and her sin. He's saying they are going to be severely punished. But not everyone in Thyatira was deceived by Jezebel. In verse 24, Jesus says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. Apparently, Jezebel was teaching some kind of secret wisdom, some kind of deep mysteries, special knowledge that she claimed was revelation from God, but really it was satanic in origin. And Jesus says, not everyone in the church has followed her teaching. He said, to those of you who have not, I'm not even going to put any more responsibility on you. I just want you to hold on tight. I want you to refuse to believe what she says. And I want you to stay faithful till I come back. And then verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And then he's quoting from Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then Jesus again, just as I have received this authority from my Father, I will give it. I will give him the morning star, this one who overcomes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just quickly, what was happening in Psalm 2 is that God's foretelling that the nations are going to rage against his anointed one. His Son, he calls him. The one that's been promised. Messiah, the Savior, the, the... The Christ. God's going to give the anointed one authority over the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. And then basically, Jesus says, Hey, I'm going to share my authority with those of you who overcome. I'm going to invite you along with me to rule those of you who've been so persecuted and so downtrodden. And then he promises the morning star. And it's very clear in Revelation twenty two sixteen 16, he's the, the morning star. He's the bright morning star, in fact. He says, I'm not only going to share my authority with you, I'm going to share myself with you if you persevere and overcome. Whew, so much stuff here. Thyatira was a church on the edge of disaster. Some people were holding firm, but many of them had fallen prey to this false prophet, this Jezebel, wolf in sheep's clothing. She was leading them into worship of idols and sexual perversion. And so I've been asking myself all week, okay, so what's the takeaway for us in all of this information? And I want to give you the same warning that Jesus gave the church, and it's a warning about, of all things, idolatry. And you're like, finally, one I don't have to worry about. I'm so glad in the Ten Commandments he said don't bow down to any graven images because I'm terrible about that honor your father and mother When and, man, that whole thing about don't lie and don't steal and don't covet your neighbor's stuff. I've, I've blown all those, but at least I've never bowed down and worshipped a statue. I'm okay. Friends, I'll be honest with you. I think idolatry might be the most pervasive and insidious problem that we have today. Stay with me, I'm almost done. To worship is to attach highest value to something. Worship is not what we do when we come here and sit down. Worship is not what we do when we stand up and sing. It's part of it. But worship is to attach highest value to something. What that means is, whatever you value the most is what you worship. Mm. Whatever you value the most is what you worship. There are times in our lives when we have all worshipped idols. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's sex or sexual attraction. Sometimes it's your job, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's your kids or your grandkids. Maybe it's your favorite hobby or your favorite sports team. It's why I think this warning about Jezebel and making sure that we don't indulge in her ways, this worship of idols is such a profound warning for us today. Whenever we put anything ahead of God in our lives, we are worshiping that thing as an idol. I mean, this is no joke. When we put anything ahead of God in our list of priorities, we're worshiping an idol. Some of you know the name Tim Keller. He's a pastor and an author. This is what he said about idols. Listen, this is is really interesting. Idols cannot simply be removed, he said. They must be replaced. If you only try to uproot an idol, it'll grow back. But they can be supplanted, he says, by what? By God himself. Now, by God, we don't mean just a general belief in God's existence. Most people have that. And yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. I love this idea that you can't just remove an idol. You have to replace it. I mean, think about the truth of that in your own life. Have you ever tried to break a habit and it seemed like another habit just slid right in? It's like you quit smoking and you started overeating. Or or maybe you got off the pills and you turned to cigarettes. Or a young woman in our family got over anorexia and so she started cutting herself. Uh, Sometimes people want to overcome sexual promiscuity and all of a sudden they've gotten ensnared in pornography instead. An idol is anything that we place highest value on. And we can fall victim to the ways of Jezebel by putting anything ahead of God in our lives. And you can't just remove the idol. What that does is it creates an empty space and something's going to fill it. If you take something out of first place, number two is going to move up. It's just the nature of things. So we have to replace the idol with the Lord Jesus, the one who wields the scepter, the one who shines like the morning star. Friends, the bottom line today is you can't simply remove an idol, you have to replace it. You can't simply remove it, you have to replace it. Let that sink in in your life and then be honest with yourself. What would be an idol in your life if you let it? Maybe it's a sinful thing and it needs to be gone. Maybe it's a good thing that you've just made too important. You can't just take it out of first place and move it down the list. You've got to put the right thing in the first spot. And you can't just remove it altogether if it's a bad thing because something else is going to fill that spot. You have to replace the idol with the Lord. We live in a culture today that is filled with idolatry. And I'm not slamming culture. My heart struggles with idolatry. Well, some of you are old enough to remember. You remember the name David Cassidy. Back in the 1970s, he was a teen heartthrob. Uh, He was on the the show The Partridge Family. He was Keith Partridge. And man, it just catapulted him to fame and fortune. Just as a young man, he was adored in the United States and in Great Britain. He sold out arenas. His music was at the top of the charts. And you, from the outside looking in, man, he had the world at his feet. He had everything in the world going for him. You know, he, he just, he had it all. But his lifestyle of kind of the party life and sexual indulgence and alcohol abuse just destroyed him. He died back in 2017 and he was a broken man. And his his daughter said that his last words were so much wasted time. So much wasted time. At the end of his life looking back, he just wasted his life we are in a culture that is consumed with idolatry we have hearts that are prone to idolatry and so we, we have to not just remove the idol we have to replace it so that we can put God where he belongs and life starts to make sense let's pray Father we, well, we just covered so much today, and maybe head spinning a little bit, and it's just a reminder, I think, of how full and rich your word is, and how it, it just all ties together, that we have a desperate need, that you met it through Jesus, and that we need him more than anything. God, help us to not just take out what doesn't belong or maybe kind of move down the list of priorities, those important things that can't be number one. We want to do more than that. We want to put Jesus where he belongs so that we can have lives that are balanced, that are healthy, and that are God-honoring. God, would you help us because we really struggle here. I know I do. We need you, and we thank you, just as you've said in this text today that you give us time to repent because you want us to be on your side thank you jesus for your sacrifice for your grace it's in your name we pray amen